Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Mark Dunlake. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we bring you a holiday special on climate. In 2023, extreme weather became a dominant theme globally. It was the hottest year on record, with many days exceeding global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius, and on at least one day passing 2 degrees. In New York, the smoke from wildfires from Canada covered much of the Northeast for a good part of the summer. Wildfires also broke out in many other places globally, including killing 100 people in Hawaii. Extreme summer heat blanketed much of the United States and Europe. So-called once-in-a-hundred-year floods hit New York City, the Hudson Valley, and Vermont. Fall storms caused flooding in Mexico, Hong Kong, and Western Europe, while flash floods killed thousands in Libya. Record droughts or lake and river waters level fall, including in the Amazon rainforest, which is rapidly losing its role as the world's lungs in absorbing carbon. The Secretary General of the United Nations said that 2003 was the year that we opened up the gates to hell. The year ended with another failed international COP climate gathering, this one presided over by a fossil fuel baron. COP28 mainly rubber-stamped the status quo, a big win for fossil fuel companies. New York State saw limited progress in climate, with well-funded disinformation campaigns by the fossil fuel industry stalling progress. The All-Electric Buildings Act was a key climate victory, with the state prohibiting new homes from using gas, though at a slower timetable than the state's Climate Action Council had recommended. A similar law passed earlier in New York City is under constant attack by the mayor and the real estate and fossil fuel industry. The governor and state lawmakers did pass a version of the Public Build Public Renewables Act that opens the door to the state's power authority building more renewable energy, though the actual decision on whether to do so won't occur for several years. Many other key climate bills, such as the New York Heat Act to curtail subsidies for expansion of gas lines, failed to pass. Four years after the state passed the CLCPA climate law, it has failed to raise the funds needed to pay for climate action. The state itself emits at least $100 billion in new funding is needed annually. Governor Hochul has proposed a cap-and-trade program to raise some funds rather than a carbon tax favored by most economists. Details of that program will be a major debate in 2024. However, the governor unsuccessfully sought to roll back the climate CLCPA's rather timid goals for emission reductions when she realized that putting a price on carbon would make fossil fuel products, like gas, more expensive. You can find all of our climate segments at mediasanctuary.org. Go to the homepage, open any of the segments, and then on the right, click Climate and the Environment. For our climate special, we have parts of six segments from the year. We start with the review of the recent COP28 climate meeting. New York News then discusses its 2024 climate jobs and justice package. 
We then hear about how environmental issues have often led to civil civilization collapse throughout human history. We hear from some of the participants at the 75,000 person climate march in New York City in September before the UN Special Session on Climate. This is followed by some of the participants on April 28th calling for the State Teacher Fund to divest from fossil fuels. And we end with the discussion about Governor Hochul's proposed cap and trade program for greenhouse gas emissions. Now, for our first segment, I talked with Sina Basilahiki about the recent COP28 event, which failed once again to call for a phase out of fossil fuels. My co-host, Mark, is the coordinator of PAWS, the local 350.org group, as well as being active in other groups and as the author of Putting Out the Planetary Fire. So I turn to Mark to ask, what is your assessment of the impact of the final COP28 agreement? Unfortunately, it's, it's pretty poor. I mean, we should remember moving into this COP um, the situation had become so dire with uh, the highest level uh, that we're aware of, of, of global warming this year, uh, extreme weather um, breaking out all over the planet, floods, heat waves, uh, massive hurricanes. Uh, it actually led the Secretary General of the United Nations to say that um, we have opened the gates to hell. Uh, due to the failure of our governments to actually take uh, effective action to reduce, um, you know, climate change. You know, there were certainly some things that people point to. Um, there was what people are calling at least some money put in the table for the so-called loss and damage um, fund, basically to help uh, developing countries recover from, you know, significant uh, impacts, but certainly a lot less than um, people had uh, need. Um, and the other thing was people were pushing very, very hard, people, governments, climate activists, scientists, that, you know, given if we're going to try to keep the 1.5 degrees centigrade warming, we have to stop burning fossil fuels. And so the big push was a rather mild statement that it's time to phase out fossil fuels, uh, instead, what we came out is it's time to transition away from fossil fuels. I mean, the reality is the big winners uh, at COP28 were the fossil fuel companies and then the countries that, uh, you know, rely upon export of fossil fuels for income, starting with, um, you know, the United uh, States. Um, I mean, I'll just quickly read a couple of quotes. Um, the problem with the text is that it still includes cavernous loopholes that allow the United States and other fossil fuel producing countries to keep on um, the expansion of fossil fuels. This is a pretty deadly fatal flaw in the text, which allows for transitional fuels to continue, which is code word for natural gas that also emits uh, carbon pollution. And that was from uh, Gene Sood, one of the national leaders, runs the Biological Diversity Energy Justice uh, department. And then a climate scientist that I follow, and I think has a lot of respect, one of the more progressive but also well-respected academic, uh, Professor Johann uh, Rockström uh, from the Potsdam Institute over in Germany. Um, no, the COP28 agreement will not enable the world to hold the 1.5 degree limit, but yes, the result is a pivotal landmark. 
the disagreement does deliver on making it clear to all financial institutions, businesses, societies, that we are now finally, eight years after the Paris Agreement, at the true beginning of the end of the fossil fuel-driven world economy. Yet the fossil fuel statement remains too vague with no hard and accountable boundaries for 2030, 2040, and 2050. A lot of greenwashing, a lot of corporate greenwashing. Uh, the lobbyists were everywhere from the fossil fuel industry. It was sort of a, I don't know, call it a flea market, but certainly a market bazaar um, for those seeking to profit off of climate change. So you mentioned the um, the politics around fossil fuels, that the beneficiaries are the fossil fuel industries. The president of COP28 was one of those beneficiaries. So could you go a little bit more into um the agreement and uh the politics and specifically where does the biden administration stand well like many uh, legal agreements government pronouncements uh, there's a lot of words which can sound nice on paper but the devil's in the details and there's an awful lot um, of loopholes and in fact it really you know sort of stays some aspirational goals we hope this occurs rather than saying we are committed to making this occur and this is how we're going to do it. Um, one of the big things was with the United States. The United States actually did support um, the call to, to phase out fossil fuels, but what they actually were doing was trying to make sure there were loopholes and they were successful um, in that fossil fuel companies would be allowed to continue to burn fossil fuels as long as they had a way of trying to pull the carbon out of the, before it went into the atmosphere. And this is what is known as, as carbon capture. And this carbon capture technology, they spent tens of billions of dollars on it. It's been going on for decades and it has never worked. And in fact, um, the uh, International uh, Energy Agency, which is as mainstream government focused as you can possibly get, you know, they even recently came out and said that uh, carbon capture is an illusion. But yet that is what the United States pushed. That's central, you know, to this agreement. Um, and, and that's a real problem. One thing I will say, there are a lot of equity issues. And, you know, for instance, um, a lot of the third world countries said, you know, the industrial north basically is the industrial revolution, burned fossil fuels for two centuries, and that's what's lifted up their economy. Now they want to shut the door so that my impoverished third world country doesn't have a path to economic development by you saying that we cannot use this cheap burning of fossil fuels, which is what your countries did to economic development. And so that's why it's so important that if we're going to tell, you know, these you know, developing countries, you have to really not follow the same fossil fuel model. We have to provide a way for them both to um, short term provide a decent standard of living for all their inhabitants and then long term be able to, you know, create a society which can provide, uh, you know, long term decent standard of living for people. And so that's considered loss and damages. Could you explain what that uh, means? Well, that's a little bit, you know, confusing, to be honest. Um, and there's loss and damages, and there's uh, climate finance, and you have to follow this for a couple decades. Um, to be honest, I think most people sort of blur, blur them together. Technically, what loss and damages is supposed to be is to provide financial system to help poorer nations 
um, actually recover from large extreme weather events, rise in sea level, extreme heat waves, uh, forest fires, crop failures, and stuff. You know, it's supposed to help them rebuild the necessary physical um, and social infrastructure. And then there's climate finance, and that's more trying to make capital available, money available to the developing world, both so that they can uh, invest in uh, technologies to um, uh, mitigate, reduce the amount of you know greenhouse gas emissions coming up, but but also uh, adapt. Now, so this is the first time that you know loss and damages was talked about at the last COP, but you know there was some money put on the table, a pitiful amount of money. The United States put in an embarrassingly low 17 million dollars uh, amount of money, and uh, Japan. 10 million and literally hundreds of billions of dollars are needed annually and most of the money provided was uh, one term one term shots not ongoing uh, financing the one thing that people saw as a victory was the united arab republic uh, put in um 100 million dollars as well as germany put in 100 million dollars and one of the big fights is that the definitions of what a developing country is comes from 30 years ago. And people are saying we need some of the more re more recently rich countries like China, like India, uh, and, and like the Gulf oil states to put money on the table. So the fact they did that was seen as a positive step. Okay, we're running quickly out of time. We have about 30 seconds left, but you mentioned the German scientists out of Potsdam in Berlin, uh, who does not seem to think that we will succeed in pushing back the 1.5 degrees Celsius. What is your take on that? We've lost the 1.5 degrees. Uh, we probably might have lost two degrees. In fact, the world scientists say we're headed to three degrees, which is totally catastrophic by the end of the century. That doesn't mean you give up, though, because every 0.1 degree you know, increase and global warming has a big impact, and we have to fight both to reduce the amount of global warming that's going to take place, but also, are we going to stand together and basically try to protect everyone uh, from the ravages of, of, of climate change, or is it going to be a dog-eat-dog -dog where the billionaires live in gated biospheres and the rest of us somehow manage to survive a loss of food and water and land? Next, we talk to Justin Woods about New York Renew's climate jobs and justice package. We're talking with Justin Wood, who is the uh, director of policy for the New York Lawyers for the Public um, Interest. He's also involved, uh, active with, with New York Renews, who, which on Wednesday, Broad Coalition held a, a series of news events across the state to launch their the campaign for next year on climate jobs and, and justice package. So, you know, welcome, Justice, and, you know, maybe just give us a brief introduction to, to New York News and why your group's involved. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. My name is Justin Wood. I'm the director of policy at New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. We're a community lawyering organization based in New York City with a focus on environmental justice, health justice, and disability justice. And for since the inception, we've been involved with New York Renews, a member of this uh, broad and diverse organization or coalition rather of 370 plus organizations across New York State in every region of the state. We, along with a lot of other members of this coalition, were involved in shaping and then fighting to win 
New York's really uh, landmark climate law called the Community uh, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act in 2019. And since then, um, we've been really engaged in advocacy to fully implement the law to meet the essential goals of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions and local pollution that's harming uh, the health of so many of our communities across the state. Now, we, we cover New Yorker News quite a bit on the show. A lot of times, Bob Cohen from, from Citizen Action and you know, they've been on about talking about the New York Heat Act and the Climate Change Superfund Act and the Just Energy Transition Act. Um, but I also understand, you know, I know in the past New York News has talked about a broader $15 billion budget request, but this year they're apparently trying to focus on, you know, $1 billion at least in this budget as a down payment. Yeah, that's right. What we're really focused on is making the state's climate law a lived reality for New Yorkers starting this year. And so we know the level of investment that our state government needs to have to make sure that we're avoiding the worst outcomes of climate change and making sure we're ready for the unavoidable parts of climate change, like extreme flooding, extreme heat, um, that we're already experiencing wildfire smoke. I mean, I, I don't need to tell New Yorkers, um, these are really troubling things that we know are gonna keep happening. But we, we know that the level uh, that our government needs to invest, and this is according to their own rigorous studies, is at least 10 to $15 billion a year, which is a pretty, actually a pretty small and reasonable portion of our state's economy. But what we're also focused on is um, really making it concrete for our legislators and for New Yorkers to understand so th that there are projects that we could start today if the governor uh, chooses to fund them, projects we could start next month if the governor chooses to fund them, that would both be addressing the climate crisis in communities across the state, creating jobs, a lot of jobs and good jobs in communities across the state, and actually improving everyday life. Um, so that's everything from better transportation that's affordable and efficient um, and, and allows New Yorkers to get to work, whether it's within one city or even between cities, um, as so many people commute long distances now, or something like bringing renewable energy right to our own communities and making sure that energy is, is cheaper than what we're paying for now, um, which in many cases is, is hurting ratepayers because we're paying for outdated power plants and gas lines that we don't need anymore and that cannot be a part of our future if we're going to address climate change. Now, for the most part, these are not, um, you know, new proposals. And, you know, I think there was some level of disappointment among climate activists the last couple of years that while you know, a couple good, really good bills were passed, Many other good bills, like the agenda this year, was not. What what makes us believe that this is a moment where the legislature finally comes to grip that they need a much more robust uh, agenda on the books than what they've been willing to do the last few years? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, our approach as as an organization at New York Lawyers for the Public Interest, and I, I think the approach of, of most of the members of New York News is that People want these things. People understand. We we don't. You know, people understand that climate uh, crisis is is here and is getting worse. I mean, I mentioned just a few of the 
really um, unfortunate things that New Yorkers have experienced this year. I mean, no one, we, we were not prepared for what happened on June 7th when, when toxic smoke um, crossed our state and, and caught us by surprise. We do know that that's likely to happen again. Similarly, we're not surprised anymore when, for example, uh, a large portion of our transit system in, in New York City and elsewhere shuts down due to extreme flooding and, and people are uh, having to spend huge amounts of money out of their own pockets to fix their homes, um, uh, which are flooding routinely now. And I think part of the focus now is people know that the climate crisis is here, but our legislators need to hear that it's unacceptable to keep um, kicking the can down the road and that the, we need to pay for this damage somehow at the same time that we're gonna, we need to pay for the investments in the future. So some of the bills that we're prioritizing this year, um, like the Climate Superfund Act, would do exactly the right thing by starting to put the responsibility on the wealthy corporations that have only become more profitable um, in the last few years that have caused most of the damage uh, in terms of climate change and that are directly responsible for things like people's homes and, and transit systems and roads and parks uh, being damaged by flooding on a routine basis now. All this makes sense, but I also read this morning that governor people testified to the New York State Legislature Financial Committees um, this week. And one of the points they made is even though they have a over $4 billion deficit, we're not going to raise, um, you know, taxes on the wealthy, and we're actually not going to cut spending on some of the big programs. Yes, they they need to raise more money, but how do you convince, you know, particularly the governor, that uh, you know she needs to put a lot more money on the table for climate than she's been willing to do so far? Well, that's that's been a core part of what our coalition has been fighting for is to make sure that the polluters that have caused the damage and continue to profit from the status quo, even though we, we don't need the status quo, and there are a lot of examples um, we could talk about, but that those corporations that are continuing to make profit um, on a system that causes so much harm, that they're the ones to pay the fair share to increase the budget that New York State has um, for these climate investments. So this shouldn't come, doesn't need to come from uh, low and middle income New Yorkers who pay utility bills and taxes. Um, they should not continue to bear the brunt of these costs. We really need to pass legislation and make sure that there are proposals in the governor's budget and in the legislature's budget that Count or, or do pass these regulations, making the biggest polluters pay their fair share of the cleanup and of the investments and the transition we need to a renewable economy. So we've been talking with uh, Justin Wood, New York Lawyers for Public Interest, um, Director of Public Policy or Director of Policy. And New York Renews released, has just released their climate jobs and, and justice package. Uh, you know, Justin, if people want to find out more about this package or, you know, even if they want to express their opinion, you know, one way or the other to the lawmakers, how, how best can they find this information in the last 45 seconds or so? Absolutely. Well, the best thing New Yorkers can do is really engage and follow New York Renews, that's NY Renews, on our website, or on social media, whether you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And 
we routinely, again, um, have the reach of a, a statewide coalition. And all of this depends on thousands of New Yorkers joining together and really um, making sure that lawmakers, regardless of what region they represent or what political party they're in, are really focused on addressing this crisis and on making sure that we don't continue to hit ordinary New Yorkers in the pocketbook to pay for this damage going forward. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Next, we talk with Professor Michael Clear about the existential challenges posed by climate change. We're talking today with Michael Clare, who's a professor emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. And he recently wrote uh, an article, appeared in a number of different locations. Uh, we are witnessing the first uh, stages of uh, civilization collapse, a lot of it about um, how we are not really responding to the, the climate crisis. So we thought we'd ask Michael, come on and explain a little bit what prompted him to, to, to write the article. So Michael, do you want to give us a brief overview of the, of the article? So my, my article is really goes back to uh, the book Collapse by Jared Diamond from 2005. Some of your listeners may be familiar with Jared Diamond's work. Uh, And I I used his book Collapse as a uh, required reading in my courses at Hampshire College for many years. It's a book about how past civilizations coped with climate change some collapsed entirely and disappeared from the earth and uh, there are no only archaeological remains and some survive to this day and he attempted to identify what are the markers that indicate a successful and unsuccessful response to climate change and i tried to apply his markers to the present and what i wrote in my article is that uh, the, what the what those markers show is that uh, we are not at present responding in a in an effective way to cope with climate change, and therefore we can we can expect if we proceed on this path to see the collapse of modern industrial civilization as we know it, uh, uh, maybe gradually, but eventually leading to sudden uh, collapse of, of nations and societies. Now, one, a couple of the points that you made uh, in the article is that, you know, often with this environmental collapse, there have been uh, agriculture or industrial processes which at least are contributing uh, to the collapse, and that one of the problems is that often there are possible solutions but that the elite are, are unwilling to take those solutions, presumably because that would undercut their own power and wealth. Are, are we seeing that at the present moment? Yes, exactly. Uh, what 
Tara Diamond shows in past civilizations like the Mayan civilization or, or the Chaco Canyon civilization in what's now New Mexico, uh, it is that even though uh, at the time there must have been evidence of decline because there were a greater increased drought and water scarcity, that the elites persisted in large palaces, construction, and other indications of elite uh, wealth accumulation when what was needed was a new form of agriculture designed to accommodate to climate change and wealth accumulation could not be a priority. Well, I think you see the same thing today uh, in how we derive our energy, for example, where it's very clear that if we're going to stop climate change and preserve our civilization, we have to stop using fossil fuels today or tomorrow, go wait, you know, go go down immediately. Yet uh, the, the elites in power in places like the United States and Russia and Saudi Arabia and China, India, where it matters, are perpetuating the fossil fuel age as long as possible. And so are uh, ensuring that uh, we will see uh, increased climate catastrophe and civilizational collapse. Now, on uh, September 17th, a lot of uh, particularly grassroots climate groups are coming together around the UN uh, special meeting on climate for an end fossil fuels rally. One of the complaints of some of the more mainstream, well-funded climate groups is that the, they felt that the uh, demonstration was a little bit perhaps too negative towards President um, Biden. But, you know, is there really evidence that, you know, say the Democratic Party in power, are, are they really being willing to confront the power of the fossil fuel industry at the moment? So I'm not in the shoes of top people in the White House, and I acknowledge their predicament they want to get legislation passed that would lead to uh, the necessary changes to move us in the direction of a green energy system. For example, the financing of, of uh, chargers for electric cars. You can't have electric cars without chargers. So they want to get legislation passed uh, to, to install a green energy future. And for that, they need Republican votes and so they feel they have to make compromises that a lot of us in the environmental community think are, are dangerous, uh, like the um, pipeline, the natural gas pipeline from West Virginia uh, through to the Atlantic coast and the Willow Project in Alaska. So these are understandable differences. I, I personally believe, as I say, we have to stop using fossil fuels tomorrow but that's not an option for the Biden administration. So I, I understand the, 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 the difficulties that they face. Uh, I, I, wish they, I wish there were no Republicans in Congress, and that really has to be our objective or the elimination of anyone who votes against urgent climate change action. That really has to be the, the, the print, the, organizing principle of our future work. Now, in the past, have there been, you know, other civilizations that have faced, you know, such existential crises, but have been able to, 
you know, adapt and do any of them then would provide lessons for our, our current situation? There have been, and Jared Diamond writes about these. Uh, some of these uh, are, you know, smaller civilizations. So, you know, you can't say that necessarily they, they, they would apply, but uh, there's the, the highland peoples in Papua New Guinea who developed agricultural processes that have um, sustained them for centuries. And they, and they did that by, by developing a very uh, democratic, egalitarian culture without any, they, they tried to create a culture in which there were no dominant elites uh, 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 monopolizing the wealth of the region, but sharing it equitably. And that though, the, that system persisted for many, many generations. So that, that is an example. And I certainly think that we have to look for models of governance that are far more equitable and uh, uh, prevent the, the uh, perpetuation of uh, power elites that uh, are, seek only their own wealth accumulation and ignore the needs of the planet and future generations. I, I think in your article you mentioned you've been you know teaching this issue to your your classes over the years, but especially this summer the extreme weather seems to be occurring uh, you know a lot faster than most people had had predicted. So it seems like the possibility of civilization collapse is actually speeding up. So what can we do to respond at this point? In a minute, I I, I think that uh, people who have been protesting and organizing against climate change and who have focused on you know, what we could do at home, installing solar panels and the like, and in our community, all that's good. But the only way that we're really going to prevent the worst effects of climate change is to alter our political system and to replace the current elites that have no interest in responding to climate change with new leadership, young leadership, drawn from our communities who see climate change action as their number one priority. That is the only way that we will be able to make change. So our climate movements, like the ones that'll meet on September 17th, have to make political change and, and organizing for that their number one priority. We've been talking with Michael Clare, uh, author of We Are Witness in the First Stages of Civilization Collapse. Organizers estimated that 75,000 people participated in the End Fossil Fuels March in New York City on September 17th, leading up to the United Nations Climate Summit. Protesters expressed displeasure about how slow world leaders, starting with President Biden, are moving to try to prevent climate collapse. We hear from several participants. So around the streets of New York City on the September 17th, in fossil fuels rally taking uh so i'm santosh nandabal and i'm a community organizer for food and water watch um here because we are in a climate emergency i think everyone gets it we've got major wildfires we've got massive natural disasters that are now becoming the norm um and it's unacceptable the political status quo has gotten us here we need real leadership from president biden to call in a climate emergency we need to get off fossil fuels we've been saying this for years now uh, the science is clear. The political action needs to follow. So we're out here to join the streets, demand that this gets done, and 
make sure we tackle the climate crisis. Well, well, you say everybody's getting it at this point that climate is a crisis. Are our elected officials getting it, however? You know, at the local level, some of them are. We've made some, some strides here, but ultimately we need our president to step up. Right now, he's been expanding fossil fuel infrastructure at a rate even greater than Donald Trump did. Um, and we worked really hard to make sure that he was the one that would be our president. Um, he needs to step up now and, and give us back what we need. Thank you, Santa. Pendergrass Religious Action Center for Reform Judaism. We're here today because uh, we are in the state of a climate emergency, and we want to raise people's attention to how serious these problems are so that we can motivate our elected officials to do more about it. Is there anything in particular you'd like to see, either the president or United Nations or anybody? What action would you like? I'd like to see a tax on uh, fossil fuel usage and that money used to support transition to renewable energy alternatives. Hi, my name is Eileen Ryan. I live in Watertown, Massachusetts, and I'm the volunteer leader of Beyond Plastics Greater Boston. The reason I came down here is to teach everyone, including all the climate activists, about the connection between plastics and the fossil fuel industry. So I understand that some people say that uh, plastics is the, is the new coal. Why is that? Emissions from fossil fuels are huge. If uh, plastics were a country, it would be the fifth largest em emitter of greenhouse gases. I am Michael Richardson, and I am here in New York City today, actually with two organizations. I'm going to start the march off with the elders group, uh, with Third Act, and then I'm going to make my way down the line to the faith group with Green Faith. United Nations, I actually have to say, I think is doing much of what they can do. Uh, Secretary General Guterres has given the clarion call that we need to do everything, everywhere, all at once. And let's add the word immediately to that. And that gets over to the federal government here in the United States, uh, which the executive branch can take some actions while the legislative branch playing fiddle while uh, Canada burns, so to speak. And uh, those things are executive orders. And let's start with number one. No more excavation of fossil fuels on federal lands. Now, you are one of the main organizers of the buses in the Capital District. How did that end up uh, playing out? Well, we started out organizing three buses. We actually picked up a fourth bus out of Catskill. So we had a bus come from Schenectady with a lot of students from Union College on it. We had two buses coming out of Albany. And then the bus that came out of Catskill stopped at Bard College. My name is Coronda Corley. I am a parent leader and leader with Step Up Louisiana. Um, which is located in Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and Jefferson Parish. Um, uh, we're an organization that fights for good schools, good jobs, and we are a state that is more than 80% rural. So climate justice is impacting and affecting the state of Louisiana in a um, disproportionate rate. It is causing erosion to our land. We also continue to have explosions from petrochemical plants um, where it's impacting and affecting our water and our soil. And it is causing genetic mutation in our people that are being born as well as rare cancers. And I understand you have Cancer Alley down there in Louisiana. We do. Our Cancer Alley is enormous. Um, when you look at the different areas that are being impacted and affected by Cancer Alley, you are having some areas that are um, having people have 100% rates for cancer. It's uh, Pete Sikora here with New York Communities for Change, and Biden keeps approving new oil and gas projects, so that's why we're marching today. 
he should stop approving new oil and gas projects and maximize good jobs for communities of color. My name is John Amidon. I'm with Veterans for Peace. I'm here because I want the children of the world to have a future. If we don't stop burning fossil fuels, if we don't stop putting all of our money into the military and exporting arms all over the world and destroying the environment, uh, none of us are going to have a future. It's already very clear that climate collapse is here. We've seen the smoke from the Canadian wildfires. We've seen the devastation of the hurricanes. The heat wave in Phoenix has been killing people, a few hundred there. The floods in Libya presumably killed about 20,000 people. It's here. It's now. We have to do something. Uh, It is a desperate situation for all of us, whether uh, many people fully realize that or not. I'm Lena Hinkle um, with 350 NYC. So the reason we're marching is because we've, you know, basically had enough. And it's a great opportunity with the Climate Ambition Summit try to get some attention. Remember, at the People's Climate March, that was really a turning point when we had 400,000 people, I think it was, followed on the heels of Hurricane Sandy. So that was a head-turner for Schumer and a bunch of electives. They, you know, finally, like, said, wait a minute, you know. It's like, we better pay attention because these are our constituents. So we've been, haven't been out on the streets in this kind of way since before the pandemic and been wanting to do something big again. I don't know what the numbers were today, but I think it was a lot bigger than they, you know, were able to calculate. What are some of the things you'd like to see, say, Biden do different? Well, the whole fossil fuel industry business model is going to doom us all. You know, they have known for over 50 years what, you know, they were doing, what would what would come. And, you know, here they are, record, you know, profits and also record high emissions. You know, they're not going to stop until we demand it. And it's, it's clear. You know, they spend all this money on a major misinformation campaign, now greenwashing. So after, after knowing, you know, Exactly what they were doing, documents have revealed, you know, that they, even Edward Teller in 1959, you know, warned them of what emissions do to the climate. And so they just continued burning and burning, and now they continue exploring. They're even still continuing to explore for more, you know, knowing it's, it's criminal what they're doing to the planet. And they should be held accountable. You know, thank God, you know, I just saw today California suing. Climate activists, teachers and students rallied on Saturday outside the New York State United Teachers Annual Representative Assembly in Albany, calling on the union leadership to follow through on the numerous resolutions passed by teachers at the local, state and national level to divest the teachers' pension funds from fossil fuels. The protesters noted that it is morally wrong for the pension fund to seek to profit from fossil fuel companies that threaten the future of life on the planet. It's also a bad financial decision to invest in an industry that we hope that world leaders agree needs to be phased out. We hear from retired arts teacher Mary Finneran, Schenectady High School student Andy Ramnoff. For example, how long before the last white Christmas in upstate New York? It rained a lot this past December. When will the spring chorus be diminished to the point of a silent spring, not caused by DDT per Rachel Carson, but by climate change? 80% of the songbirds in this country have disappeared. Climate change is making deserts of many places and destroying and expanding shorelines in others. 
fossils play a major, fossil fuels play a major role, both those emitting CO2, but worse yet, those emitting natural gas, methane, CH4. My heart is torn every time I remember that about 5% of my nicest pension comes from fossil fuels. Those same fossil fuels are destroying our children's future. If we don't act now and stop climate decimation, we will lose much of life on Earth. Rhetorically, NYSEG leaders claim to endorse fossil fuel divestment, but I can't find it mentioned on the NYSEG website. Basically, to quote Greta Thunberg, the climate youth champion, regarding <clears throat> leaders' lack of real climate concern and action, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. NYSEG, in blah. truth, refuses to push NYSEGs to protect the future of our teachers, students via divestment. We hear from our state legislators that NYSEG lobbyists have told them not to support the Teachers Fossil Fuel Divestment Act, which would make it law that NYSEGs divest from fossil fuels. <laughs> Shame. Blah, 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 NYSEG. You have earned an F. You have failed our students. Do you not get that this is the existential crisis of our times? Existential as in many of our life forms, including many people, will cease to exist? The UNIPC states right now our current pace of action is not sufficient to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Warren Lyons, chief of the Onondaga Nation, asks, what about the seventh generation? Where are you taking them? What will you have? Nyset, make up your failing grade by insisting that Nystas divest from fossil fuels. Next, Schenectady High School student, Andy Ramnoff. And I'm a senior at Schenectady High School. Over my four years at Schenectady, I've noted that the student experience at Schenectady's buildings is immensely dependent on the natural environment. From elementary playgrounds to middle school courtyards and even high school gardens, nature is an integral aspect of our education system. Nature is a required part of schools for in order for their functioning, and it present and its presence brings joy to struggling students, teachers, and school faculty as a whole. The threat that the overuse of fossil fuels has on the health of nature and its role in schools is undoubtedly alarming. Global warming threatens the safety of plants in green spaces that rely on a consistent ambient temperature and a lack of environmental disasters like flooding, wildfires, and drought. Furthermore, global warming will contribute to a lack of comfortable learning environments. Nobody wants to learn in sweltering heat, and air conditioning in many cases is inaccessible for schools and even exacerbate the climate crisis as a whole. It is unlikely that this knowledge is new to you, as countless instructors in standardized courses their very own curricula consider the harmful effects of fossil fuels on the environment. So why is there hesitancy towards divestment of the very companies that profit off of fossil fuel, of fossil fuel usage? Divestment from the fossil fuel industry will show these companies that teachers and union leaders are not willing to sacrifice the very future generations that they teach and support for financial prowess. If divestment doesn't occur now before this problem has reached a major tipping point, then when will action be forged? As a student interested in entering the education field and becoming a teacher, this topic is paramount. I yearn for a future of joyful jungles, beautiful beaches, and outstanding oceans. I hope that the schools of the future can reflect these natural features in their courtyards, fields, and greenhouses. 
However, if change doesn't occur, climate change will continue to grow without bounds, fueled by the accelerant that is the fossil fuel industry. Schools will not have sustainable courtyards, they will not have beautiful plants, and they most certainly will not have happy students and staff. To divest is to show that you care about the future, the future that you as instructors spend your days developing. For our last segment, environmental justice advocates have long been wary of cap and trade programs like California's carbon markets and the uh, regional greenhouse gas initiatives in New York which have been shown to be both ineffective and inequitably burden frontline's community. This is because such schemes allow polluting facilities, which are more likely to be located in frontline communities, to purchase allowances and offsets to evade caps and essentially pay to pollute. Rhea Salter, founder of the Energy Justice Law and Policy Center and a member of the New York State Climate Action Council, discussed concerns with Governor Hochul's cap and invest program. We're joined by Raya Salter, who is the uh, founder and uh, I guess uh, executive director of the Energy Justice Law and Policy Center. It was also a member of the uh, Climate Action Council that drafted the uh, scoping plan uh, out of the uh, new state climate law. And she recently uh, published, uh, I guess, a blog uh, responding to what the uh, governor is proposing and the legislature sort of gave some support to to do uh, a cap and invest program so uh ryan could maybe just briefly educate people as to what what is cap and invest and um what are some of your concerns yes and thank you hi yes i'm raya also known as climate auntie where you can find me on instagram if you like and yes i'm happy to thank you so much for having me on um so Yes, this idea of cap and invest is really cap and the idea of cap and trade just by another name. And it's a market-based mechanism that is in theory designed to both reduce greenhouse gap emissions by capping emissions and, and charging a price for folks to um uh to pollute essentially that it gets ratcheted down with the idea that you know, um, through this market-based trading, allowance trading system that GHGs are reduced, and then use those funds to actually invest in the type of clean energy projects that we need. So that's the broad idea of cap and invest. It's something that uh, they're doing in California. It's something that has also started in Washington state. And it's something that in a, in a similar type of form, we do regionally in New York, with the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, also known as REGI. And it's something that came out of the Climate Action Council planning process at the end of the year in a sketch. And then we saw a lot of activity in the budget around it. And I do have a lot of concerns because without focusing on really the goals of the CLCPA and actually shutting down fossil fuel and investing in frontline communities, I feel that something like cap and invest could be a distraction. We need more than just cap and invest. Now, many uh, environmental justice groups and other climate groups over the years have been fairly opposed to the whole concept of cap and trade, um, feeling that it often results in allowing pollution to continue um, and, and those neighborhoods tend to be low income and, and, and communities um, of color. Uh, I, I know that groups like New York Renews put out a number of suggestions as to some steps that the governor and legislature could take in order to try to potentially reduce the harm to uh, EJ communities moving forward. But that didn't seem to get 
enacted. Do we have any sense what the legislature or the governor may be willing to do along some of the concerns that groups like New York Renews articulated? A lot of EJ groups have been historically you know, against to cap and trade. Um, and this is and this is something I was very concerned about and also voiced at the Climate Action Council. We've seen in California and in Reggie, uh, there have been analyses that have shown two really important things. One, the idea of a market-based mechanism on its own, that a market-based mechanism on its own will get a will reduce overall greenhouse gas emissions at the trajectory that we need to meet our climate goals is proving to be a problem. It's not happening in California. And we have every reason to believe that absent additional regulation, we won't be able to reach our goals with a market-based mechanism on its own. Second, we've also learned from California that the reductions that do happen don't happen equally. They don't happen in disadvantaged communities at the same rate as other places. We've also learned that from analysis of the Reggie program. And that flouts what New York law says, which is we must take early action and prioritize emissions and co-pollutant reductions in disadvantaged communities. So we're concerned about program design, uh, longstanding EJ concerns. Now at the Climate Action Council, we talked about some of this and at the council, really we put together a sketch, um, a framework and guiding criteria of what a cap and invest program should look like. And I urge folks to return to that because there's a lot that's talked about there in terms of how can we address EJ concerns? How can we mitigate them in the program design? For instance, having requirements that caps that are in or adjacent or impacted um, where EJ communities are in um, adjacent or impacted by these po polluting sources, maybe you have a lower cap, maybe that cap decelerates faster over time so we can accelerate um, the emissions reductions there. So there are ideas that were placed there that I hope get picked up and carried through that should be looked into in the rulemaking that comes from this. And I hope that the legislature follows. Now, one of the steps that the legislature did do when they passed the CLCPA climate law was they created, I think it's called the Climate Justice Working Group to make sure that the voices of EJ communities were heard. Mm -hmm. um, has, since this appears like it's going to be done primarily through administrative regulation to DEC, has DEC indicated they're going to give a central role to the Climate Justice Working Group? And did the Climate Action Council and mainly DEC actually pay attention to the Climate Justice Working Group in developing the uh, climate uh, scoping document? So that's a very good question. So, yes, that in in the climate action in the climate scoping plan and in their statements about a, the rulemaking that we are anticipating around cap and invest. There, there's consistently this language that we are going to engage all the stakeholders. We're going to engage environmental justice leaders and others in the design of this program. I think we're going to see a straight, a more straightforward kind of, um, you know, rulemaking. I, I don't think we're going to see the Climate Action Council and the Climate Justice Working Group sort of re-stood up to specifically address this, or I doubt that, although that could be a positive thing. But what is really important about the Climate Justice Working Group is that they finalize their criteria for who is a quote unquote disadvantaged community. And that was that was a multi-year process that was supported by the DEC comment all around the state that was finalized just like a month and a half ago. Why is this important? Because this is officially in New York law, helping decide what the invest part of cap and invest would and should look like. And I was disappointed to not see 
more of the, you know, how the um, New York State's climate justice mandates would apply to cap and invest in the governor's cap and invest proposal. But in any case, myself and others and the climate justice working group will be and individual folks will be pushing really hard in this cap and invest ruling uh, rulemaking to make sure that we see um, strong benefits going to disadvantaged communities as is required by the CLCPA. Now, about a month ago, the climate movement um, went into overdrive when the governor uh, suddenly appeared to be backing away from some of the reductions uh, in emissions because when the state of Washington went to a cap and invest for the first time, uh, their price at the auction was thinking a little bit over $40 a ton, which is more than apparently uh, Governor Hochul might have been anticipating and began to raise concerns how it would increase prices at, at the um, at, at the pump. And yet at the same time, when Congress and others have looked at cap and trade, one of the reasons they tend to not to work too well is that the politicians end up um, making the cap not as, as tight as one would like because of pushback from the fossil fuel industry. So are, are we concerned what Governor Hochul is going to do, given that she really you know, began to run away from the plate just a month ago? Yep. We have every reason to be concerned because really, in my view, what that effort was about was not about cost, about cap and invest, but it was about the fossil fuel industry's long held and openly held desire to slow down the CLCPA and to fear monger about cost. We didn't get a su substantive analysis for the from the governor about cost, which is why I'm glad none of that ended up happening in the budget. We need to take a good look at the numbers in this upcoming rulemaking. But that, to me, we have every reason to be concerned because that was what happened there. The fossil fuel industry throughout the entire Climate Action Council process openly wanted to slow down the climate law by changing how we do the greenhouse gas emissions accounting and you know other ways to slow it down. And to me, that's what that was about, not about cost. And yes, the governor has signaled that she is going to continue to press this issue about changing the uh, GHG accounting for our climate law, and we must be vigilant. We've been talking with Raya Salter, the Energy Justice Law and, and Policy Center. In the last 20 seconds, if people want to basically find out more what you're doing and keep on top of this issue, get some websites or something they can take a look at. Absolutely. Follow me, Raya Salter, on Twitter. Follow me, Climate Auntie, on Instagram, www.ejlpc.org. And thank you so much for having me and covering this important issue. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the Hudson Moore Cook Magazine. I'm Mark Dunley. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Thank you.